Hello, and welcome to Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series 2020 to 2021. That was a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Professor of Development Studies, Professor James Putzel. The Cutting Edge Series provides students and guests with invaluable insights into the practical world of international development, with experts sharing their expertise and invite discussion on an exciting range of issues from responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to climate change policy to decolonizing academia. During the academic year 2020-21, we moved the series online, which meant we could host fantastic speakers from around the world and stream the series online, opening up the lectures to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Tonight's speaker is, I suppose, the world authority on DFID because she set it up and ran it for the first six years. This is the Department for International Development of the UK government. Um, And we're at a time of extraordinary upheaval in the UKA program with uh, DFID being folded back into the Foreign Office, with the Foreign Office announcing that in the new global Britain, it will only employ British nationals. Um, and various other um, uh, appalling things being uh, happening in the last couple of weeks. So we are going to hear from the person who was at the centre of the whole exercise today. So Claire Short, she was Secretary of State for in the course of her talk. Um, from 1997 to 2003, she was an MP for Birmingham Ladywood from 1983 to 2010. And for most of that period, she was a Labour Party MP. She did resign the party whip right at the end and served as an independent MP. She left parliamentary politics in 2010, but she didn't leave international development. So she chaired a very interesting initiative called the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, um, which is a global standard for transparent governance of oil and gas. Um, And she's been involved in uh, 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 International Cities Alliance and various other things. So she's gonna speak for about 40 minutes on the demise of DFID um, and presumably wider issues around the UK aid program. And then we'll have a brief uh, uh, comment from our discussant, James Putzel, who is the co-organizer with me on, of this whole series, but he's also Professor of Development Studies uh, at LSE, Program Director uh, on Development Studies and Research. And he's also been a long-term watcher of the UKA program in general and DFID in particular. So he's gonna give a few pointed comments on Claire's presentation. So unless anybody wants to Chip in with anything. Claire, over to you. Thank you. Now I'm going to open my slides and hope it all works. There. How is that? Excellent. Perfect. Good. Well, I've been asked to talk about the demise of the Department for International Development. And I'm one of those people that likes to stand on a platform and gesticulate and look at people in the audience. But as we or learning to do it on Zoom. I've prepared some slides, which isn't my normal practice, so I hope it works, but we have some contingency plans if anything goes wrong. Um, Now, as you probably all know, in the past five months, the government has made a series of very significant announcements in relation to UK development policy. The first that DFID has been merged with the Foreign Office, and I'll come on to the detail, I think it's much more a takeover than a merger. 
that the aid budget has been cut by four billion pounds this year at a time of a global crisis caused by the pandemic, but having big economic consequences for the poor of the world. So just at a time of great need, a cutback in significant amounts of money, but compared with what the government is spending on the crisis in the UK, a small amount of money. So it's pure meanness. And then as Duncan has said, this shocking announcement that non-UK nationals will no longer be able to work in UK development. Um, there is a rumor that DFID staff are being merged into the Foreign Office rather than as in the past when Tory governments put the old overseas development administration inside the Foreign Office. It had its own structure and its own permanent secretary. The logic of not allowing foreign nationals to work in UK development is that staff are going to be merged across the organization and if that is true it means that expertise will be badly lost but we will see and of course the DFID has always employed people other foreign nationals Minouche Shafiq for example I presume she wasn't a UK national when she first came to DFID from the World Bank, other senior people from the bank, people from Europe, Africa, and so on, a nice internationalism in the department. That is all to be brought to an end. Um, and there's some transitional arrangements for the foreign nationals that are there at the moment, the 100 plus. And then on top of all that, the prime minister has announced that 16.5 billion extra money has been found for extra military spending over the next four years. So quite a lot of significant changes in a very short period of time. Now, it's not my view that the current arrangements are sacrosanct and that nothing that has been done up to now should be changed. I think that DFID has a good track record and we, people who've worked in it and people who've worked alongside it and the country can be proud of what it's achieved. But I think there is a case for a review of the working of the UK development policy and its budget after a successful 23 years. Poverty has been reduced considerably, not of course just by the UK, but by a big international collaboration. But the world is facing new challenges from the climate crisis, the ecological crisis, and the growing concentration of extreme poverty in fragile conflict prone states and the UK has in recent years increased its commitment to working in fragile states but I think both the UK and the international system is not particularly good at this work it's very very difficult work but if you look at Somalia the Democratic Republic of Congo Afghanistan, I suppose, and so on. You can see the state of the challenge and the low level of achievement. Of course, it's possible to provide humanitarian relief, but how can you help a country build its institutions and achieve stability and real economic development and a better life for its people? That's very difficult work. And I think it would be worth our while to review how well we've done it and how much better we could do it. And it's not just the UK, how can we work in the international system to achieve more in this crucial area. So I'm not against a review, but it's quite clear that the government changes are not the result of a serious review. 
And in my view, I believe they are driven by a long-standing Foreign Office hostility to an independent development department and by hostility to aid itself on the Tory right and in the right-wing media. And I will explain why I reached that conclusion. This is clearly an example of incoherent policy making. The government has announced that it's going to review international uh, policy, looking at the Foreign Office, the Department for International Development, the Ministry of Defence, and then keeps making announcements that preempt the outcome of any review. And I'm afraid that this isn't the only area where we're getting incoherent policy making. Do you remember um, world beating track and trace? for testing for COVID or the recent OECD report, the UK has one of the highest death rates per, per capita in the world, has spent more on emergency measures, uh, but apart from Argentina, the economic damage to the UK economy is one of the worst in the world. So we've got incoherent policy making in the government in general, not just in relation to this question. Um, so that's part of the problem that we have right now. Although I have to say the commitment of the government to doing better on reducing carbon dioxide emissions, at least in announcements, is something pleasing. So they're getting something right, maybe. Um, so it was on June, the 16th of June 2020 that the Prime Minister announced that DFID was going to be folded into um, the Foreign Office. And he started off by saying, I have begun the biggest review of our foreign defense and development policy since the end of the Cold War, designed to maximize our influence and integrate all the strands of our international effort. And then he went on to announce the merger before the review had reported. So his own contradiction was completely there. Um, the reasons he gave for the merger, the first was that DFID outspends the Foreign Office more than four times over. Now this shows completely muddled thinking. The Foreign Office is made up of diplomats who are good at representing British interests as ambassadors and high commissioners in foreign countries at the UN, in negotiating treaties, in charming people at lunches and dinners with their skills in languages. This, this battle isn't about demeaning the Foreign Office, they're good at the things they do, but they don't do development. And of course, what they do doesn't have a big budget. So the, the, the DFID has a bigger budget than the Foreign Office is obvious and blatant. Um, and then he goes on to say, yet no si single decision maker in either department is able to unite our efforts. This also shows complete ignorance. Of course, Development isn't just Foreign Office DFID, it also needs to work with Defence, Environment Department over Climate, um, Environment, uh, yes, I've said that, HMRC over improving tax systems and not allowing corrupt money to be hidden in the, in the country, the Home Office on Migration, obviously health into, in relation to the World Health Organization and pandemics and so on. There are lots and lots of government departments that have to work on development challenges um, and with the Department for International Development. So the Prime Minister seems to think it's simply a matter of 
Foreign Office and DFID. And then he says there's no sing single decision maker in either department able to unite our efforts. Well, there is machinery. There's a National Security Council when we come to fragile states and um, all those questions, and he chairs it. And then there's machinery across Whitehall of officials and ministers to get all the development efforts united. So this shows complete muddle. And I mean, civil servants are usually good at getting ministers sorted out before they make statements to parliament that really show ignorance, but clearly not here. My own theory is, I mean, the prime minister was, if you remember briefly, the foreign secretary, highly criticized, not thought to have done well in the role in the May government and then resigned of, over the, all the Brexit conflict. But I think he was spoken to about this dreadful division between the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development, and it clearly stuck in his mind. He went on in this statement to say, and this is really shocking, we give as much aid to Zambia as we do to Ukraine, though the latter is vital for European security. We give 10 times as much aid to Tanzania as we do to the six countries of the Western Balkans who are acutely vulnerable to Russian meddling. Well, I think everybody understands that development funds are meant to be spent and invested in helping some of the poorest countries and people of the world to have an improvement in their lives and their institutions and the social services and the economic development of their country so they can have a better life. In fact, there's legislation that requires that I'm proud to have put on the statute book that requires that the only legal basis for UK spending of aid is for the reduction of poverty. And yet it seems that the Prime Minister wants to spend money in Ukraine rather than Zambia and um, in the Western Balkans rather than Tanzania. So muddled thinking, no longer a focus on poverty, very worrying. Um, on top of that, of course, when we got to November, Rishi Sunak uh, announced this cut in the um, ODA commitment. Now, the Britain has this entrenched law that says we must spend 0.7% of ODA on development. This is a long-standing UN recommendation. Um, my own view is that I'm not wedded to the 0.7. It's difficult to manage the budget because you never know until the end of the year what exactly it would, is going to be. And I believe that it caused enormous hostility to our development efforts in the years of massive cuts in most other government departments and undermined the UK uh, commitment to development. So I think in the time of cuts, it would have been wiser to also reduce somewhat our aid spending. And I also think that this 0.7% of ODA obsession has created a total focus on quantity rather than quality of, develop, of our development efforts. And I think there's been some reduction in, in quality with very little commentary because defending 0.7 is such an obsession with all the campaigners. However, this is not the time for any cuts. This is complete cruelty and meanness. I completely agree with Martin Wolf of the FT, no great lefty he, and many others who's made clear now is not the time for a cut. Writing on the 30th of November in the Financial Times, he says, what the government doesn't says in a time of a crisis like this tells us much about its character and capacity. He goes on to comment on the capacity in the, the broad economics, but 
On its character, the revealing decision was cutting the aid budget by 0.2% of gross domestic product. At just over 1% of this year's net public borrowing and 0.4% of spending, the money being saved is irrelevant. The decision violated a manifesto commitment, that is of this government when it stood for election. Above all, and this is Martin Wolf still speaking, according to the World Bank, the COVID-19 pandemic is estimated to push an additional 88 million to 115 million people into extreme poverty this year. This is people who've managed to climb their way up and do a bit better, and they're going to be crushed back down by the economic consequences of the pandemic. And he ends by saying, this then is a revealing case of ostentatious meanness. I agree with that. And I think it's very interesting that when David Cameron decided to match Labour's commitment on international development, retain the departments, I think he, he believed in it. He did co-chair the Commission on the Sustainable Development Goals, but he also let it be known that he was trying to get rid of the image that Theresa May described as the Tory party as the nasty party. Well, I think this decision is return to the nasty party. It's mean, nasty, no economic case for it, kicking the teeth for some of the people the poorest people in the world who really need some help at the moment. Um, as a broader background, there is a history of difference between the parties on whether there should be a separate development department. The separate ministry was first established by Harold Wilson under Barbara Castle for, in 1964. Of course, out of the old colonial office and so on. It didn't come from nowhere, but you couldn't carry on there. But... Um, each time the Tories came to power, the development ministry was put, pushed into the foreign office, so the foreign secretary had the final say. And then um, when Labour came to power, there was a separate ministry, sometimes headed by a cabinet minister, sometimes outside the cabinet. But so, so there is a history between the two departments. But as I said earlier, in the past, the development, the ODA, was this self-contained part of the foreign office, Yes, with the Foreign Secretary having the final say, but with its own permanent secretary. And it looks as though that may be in danger this time, which will be a real loss of development effectiveness. And then my own experience of this issue, um, as you'll all know, when uh, we're coming up to a general election, the opposition party is consulted by each department about what its programme would be. And obviously in 96, before the 97 election, everybody knew Labour would win. So these consultations were very serious. And Labour already had a commitment to establish a separate Department for Development, headed by a cabinet minister with competence way beyond just spending aid in trade, in environment, in making the whole international system more supportive of development in the poorest countries. Um, and then in the consultation period, Robin Cook, who became the Foreign Secretary and had chaired the Labour Party committee that made this commitment, was told by the Foreign Office he'd made a big mistake and Tony Blair, the incoming uh, Prime Minister, was told he made a mistake. So when I was appointed to the opposition role in 96, Blair said to me, please review this commitment. It might not be wise. I want you to look at it, which I duly did. And I reviewed all the 
Scandinavian country models because they've tried all sorts of various arrangements. And then when I got to meet um, John Verica, who was, uh, was to become my first permanent secretary, he said, if we want development to be properly considered in, by the UK government system, you have to have a separate department. Otherwise, short-term commercial and political interests always overwhelm and diminish the quality of what is done. And I duly wrote a note for Tony Blair and he didn't respond, but of course he was busy in the run-up to the election, but it meant um, when the election was over and I was coming down from my constituency, uh, there were rumours that both Michael Meacher and I were not going to be in the cabinet, even though Labour rules said in those days that the elected shadow cabinet must be in the cabinet. Um, but, and so I wasn't next to my phone, I went to my brother's uh, birthday, but then I got this phone call from the number 10 switchboard saying, where are you? We want you to come in. And yes, Tony said, I want you to be the Secretary of State for International Development. I sometimes think that if I hadn't been seen as a bit of the awkward squad and it might make waves if um, I were disgruntled, that maybe the Foreign Office would have got its way and persuaded Robin and Tony to not have a separate department for international development, but we'll never know whether that is true. Um, and on top of that, of course, as I have said, there's also a long history of aid being misused for national commercial interests. And of course, in the Cold War years for political purposes, not linked to development, the reduction of poverty, helping countries to build their own institutions and grow their economy. There's a paper here that I'd like to recommend to anyone who's interested in um, the history of development efforts in the UK. It's by Sir John Vereker, who was, as John Vereker, my first permanent secretary, who I have mentioned already. And it's very much his own review for himself of 50 years working in development. So it doesn't talk much about politicians, but it does, I think, encapsulate importantly, some of the history and some of the dangers that I think we might well be going back to with this role of DFID back into the Foreign Office. So in the paper, for those who read it, they will see, um, John Vereker talks about what happened in aid in the 1970s. And this is, you know, it was only established out of the old colonial office and so on in 64. So these are early days, 70s. The Ministry of Overseas Development in the 70s saw its function as administering aid projects. And that was sort of one-off projects, not helping systems get working. Um, and he says they had a limited lasting effect uh, because often if you just build a hospital, but there's no one training the health workers or looking to the supplies, etc. It doesn't work and it sets countries up to fail and waste money. And there was lots and lots of those stories in the early days. And he says, and there was a great, a good deal of blatantly self-interested or politically driven behavior. And this wasn't just the UK, this was right through the international system. He goes on to say it was almost invariably tied to the purchase of British goods and services Sometimes this descended into farce. He recalls being instructed to use his budget to supply British instruments for a brass band so they could perform during Princess Anne's honeymoon in Ecuador on her way to the Galapagos. Shocking, but that's how it was. Um, 
He then says, when it comes to the 80s, increasingly the donor countries, and I think this is people working in development, coordinate their efforts through the Development Assistance Committee of the OECD, and they all see that this favouring their own country's businesses is leading to ineffective development and dubious and semi-corrupt behaviour indeed. And they agreed through that arrangement to a system of peer review where all countries put their system up to be looked at by other countries to learn from each other and that led to pressure to improve. And they all agreed that aid should not be used for commercial or political self-interest. So he's saying that that cooperation through the Development and Assistance Committee of the OECD created this aspiration to stop the tying of aid and procurement and this commercial interest. And he gives lots of instances of aid projects driven entirely by British commercial interests and people will know about the Perga Dam, but it wasn't only the Perga Dam, this was a constant. Westland helicopters, people might remember because it caused um, Heseltine to resign from the cabinet. But these were sold to India with aid associated uh, spending. They didn't suit the Indian climate. They started falling out of the air. Um, and so there was talk of having to find some money to bail out all these problems that led to the Heseltine row. So all countries were doing this and this was common behavior. And it wasn't until 2001 when I was in government that we got agreement through the OECD development uh, committee that all countries would untie their aid from national procurement for the least developed countries, the poorest countries. And I was also able to announce that the UK would untie all its aid. Um, and this really matters to the quality and not having um, dubious purposes in what you spend and doing more to invest in the countries building up their own capacity. But it took 40 years to get this decision. Not all countries still have agreed to it on things other than the least developed countries. And of course, all such government decisions are reversible. And I fear and think it likely that that one will be reversed given the new arrangements um, in the UK system. Um, just briefly to say, when we took over in 1997, working with other countries, we looked for a different way of working. Um, we looked at the conclusions of the UN conferences of the 80s and 90s, what had worked in development, and then this report from the OECD shaping the 21st century that in turn shaped the Millennium Development Goals. And looking at what had worked, they suggested a big push to halve the proportion of people living in poverty, to get all children, including girls, through primary education, which all the research shows it really lifts a country. There's children that have been to school, particularly girls, as they grow up, to do more on um, reproductive health care. You don't have to force anyone about family size, but give women control over their own fertility and work on reducing infant, child and maternal mortality. And we, the UK, said, right, we're going to work in this way collaboratively with other institutions, the UN, the multilateral system, other development agencies. And the other part of it is 
to work with governments, not tell them what to do, not hector them, but get an agreed programme and then work long term to build the institutional capacity of the country. So that's a very different approach to development. Um, John Vereker is proud of that change that was brought about. I'm proud of the way in which we worked. Um, and I just want to give a flavour there of bad aid and better aid and how things can be done much better. So now I come to my conclusion and look forward to the discussion. My conclusion is a sad one. I believe, and I hope I've demonstrated it, that the evidence is clear that the merger was driven by departmental feuding and the cut in the aid budget by right-wing prejudice. John Vereker says that the tension has existed over the years and is between a development ministry focused on bringing about fundamental long-term change and a foreign office institutionally wedded to the short term and the status quo. And I want to make clear, this isn't a foreign office knocking um, exercise. The foreign office has a job to do. We need our diplomats. We have to look at our political short-term self-interest. We have to look at our commercial interests. They're legitimate interests, but they're not development. And muddling them up is just going to get dubious behavior and poor quality development. And the suggestion that the foreign office somehow has an expertise in development is a, is a nonsense. I think the quality of UK development efforts would inevitably deteriorate and commercial interests will be reinstated. In fact, I think they've been creeping in already. Respect for UK international cooperation will decline. And it's one of the parts of our international reputation that is still fairly good, um, but that will decline considerably, I fear. So for the future, good officials, and some of the people who work for the Department for International Development are some of the best. They carried the flag, learned the lessons, held the expertise all through the years. Thatcher cut and cut their budget and wasn't that sympathetic, but they held on and did their best whenever they could. And they will do the same inside the Foreign Office. They'll hold on to the principles and the lessons about effectiveness. And then we have objective reality. We're going into difficult times, the climate, Emergency will cause more and more displacement of people. Um, the ecological crises will affect food supplies and deliverability. There'll be crisis after crisis. And, uh, and we've got in some of the poorest, fragile countries, um, terrorist movements that cause all sorts of harm to their people and um, more, more broadly. So, Bad development will not address these issues and some of the arguments will come forward again to do development well, but I think we're going to have a setback before we get back to that. And then my final hope for the future is that governments come and go. This government will go, lessons will be learned. An independent, reviewed and refocused department, I think, will be reborn because that's the best way to do development. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. You can, brilliant. Okay. Um, as you were speaking, I, it, it took me back. It, I, I actually joined the development sector the day after the 97 election. Um, and it was a period of sort of epic possibility and the whole discussion around DFID and all these new ideas and the untying. And it's, it was just so different. I'm going to sound very old now to all our students, you know, but um, it was an extraordinary time and it was lovely to have you 
to, to sort of real to, to to invoke all of that again. So now I'm going to hand over to James Putzel, who's um, going to reflect on what Claire's just said and sort of guide the discussion from here on in. Claire's been incredibly disciplined on her presentation, so we have lots of time for Q and A. So I would urge you. Uh, we've had great questions so far this term. Please put your questions in the chat and we'll group them together and we'll, we'll actually ask you to come on and ask a question yourself uh, when, when the time comes. So do start thinking about what questions you have as you also listen to James's uh, thoughts. Uh, James, over to you. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Duncan. And Claire, thank you so much for what I expected would be a sharp and insightful talk. In fact, Normally, when I'm a discussant, I want to mount a lot of criticisms and critical challenges, and I don't want to do that here. I, I think your analysis is spot on in terms of what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm brought back, and I can't, you know, we're emphasizing how old we are, but I'm brought back to the moment in, I guess it was 1997, uh, before, before the election, uh, when I first met you, and I'm sure you have no memory of this, but um, you were consulting lots of people after you you, you became shadow uh, on international development. I know it was a new brief for you. Uh, you had been deeply involved in social policy work and 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 domestic British politics, but you were taking the sounding from a number of academics as well as NGOs and many other people who were involved somehow in thinking about development. As you mentioned, um, the consultations you carried out. Um, and I remember John Harris and Teddy Brett and I uh, went to your offices and I was absolutely dumbfounded by how much you had gotten on top of the brief. And so we had things to say. I can still remember you saying at one point to Teddy Bear, please be quiet, you know, I want to hear. <laughs> I have a lot of different questions to ask. And so that was my first encounter. And since then, I've really enjoyed the occasions of being able to interact. And I think you were a stellar Secretary of State for International Development. Um, you know, I, I will probably just want to emphasize certain things you said in the few minutes I have to comment. Um, clearly, what this government is doing is more than incoherent. Um, it's certain that this government, in my own personal view, is the most incompetent collection that I've seen in my living memory uh, of governments of the past. But but the, there is a decided position and the moves of the Johnson government now about development aid really do hark back as, as uh, Vereker uh, said to uh, the, the old right position on development and development aid. And our students uh, perhaps um, have read the work of Peter Bauer. There had always been a conservative opposition to the whole entire idea of aid. And that has come to the fore and informed the current group that's in government. Um, the, the, the big move of New Labour um, in 1997, um, uh, when, when the, the new government came to power, what was a, a, a break that, from, from a practice in aid 
that was characterized by Tide Aid, as you said, um, that came to a head around the big scandal of the Purgao Dam when the, the uh, British government was trading aid to Malaysia for purchase of British arms. And Tim Lancaster, for any of the students who want to look into that, wrote um, a very interesting book about that. He was at the time in the civil service, if I'm not mistaken, um, working around the aid administration. Yeah, so, he was the permanent secretary of ODA. Yes, right, the permanent secretary. Um, and the Development Aid Act that was passed at the time was extremely important. It drew on and brought to the fore of British, of the British government, uh, the, the, the moves that had taken place since the late 1960s um, within the OECD to work towards defining a distinction between what really is aid from what is the activity and legitimate activity of governments to to uh, finance their military activities abroad and to promote their commercial, the commercial interests of their businesses. And um, it's, it seems to me that it was an extremely important consolidation in Britain with the Development Aid Act, centering aid around poverty. And that 0. Point, I agree with you, 0.7% GDP um, is overmade as a as a target, but it had symbolic importance because it was at that very same time, big debate in the late 60s, around 1970, about what aid, what should constitute aid and what should not. And it was at that time in the UN that there was this suggestion that 0.7% um, of GDP of rich countries be spent on aid. So it was symbolic. Uh, so uh, I do think the move away from that is also a symbolic one of, uh, of importance, but I agree with your position about this. Um, I think one of the things that I, I wouldn't mind you commenting on in, when you're answering student questions um, is the kind of tension you faced in subsequent years after establishing what really was a gold standard I think, in, in among official development donors, the tension to redirect aid from the time of the invasion of Afghanistan, and then especially after the invasion of Iraq, more and more aid went to the military theaters of the, of the OECD countries involvement, particularly the, the US and the UK. Um, and so that that's, that's been a, a tension that was there and even a tension that was present over, over and involved your own resignation from the government. In 2015, we saw a big move in the OECD Development Assistance Committee where aid was redefined. And that redefinition was a, you know, an undoing of what had been achieved in the late 60s, early 70s. So the definition of aid now could include money spent to finance military operations to secure peace. So this was more or less legitimizing a practice that had started already, where MOD took a considerable amount of, of the aid budget for its activities. Two moves happened in 2015. That one, which allowed the expenditure um, of M what, what was previously covered by MOD, but also the moves that allowed to be counted as aid 
more and more funds being given to British industries, et cetera, to reduce their risk to invest uh, in, in parts of the developing world. Because now we have a new paradigm. Business is going to lead the way in international development, and that's at the heart of the sustainable development goals. So I think this is a, the actions of this government are consolidating these moves, accelerated enormously in Britain since the Tories came to power in 2010. Uh, so it's a culmination of a move. And I think to conclude really that you're absolutely right, that this cut, while um, is, is insignificant savings in terms of the scale of the British government's deficit at the moment, um, though it's going to have a huge impact on um, the programs, successful programs, et cetera, that aid money from the UK has, has funded up until now. So I would agree that this is an act of meanness and it's an act very much in the tradition, the worst tradition of the old Tory party, not the best tradition of the old Tory party. So let me, let me, let me stop there and I can't wait to hear the students' questions. I'm sure Duncan, before, before closing uh, with, with our, our outside of the LSE audience, will tell you about our, our lineup for next week. Thanks for the reminder, James. Um, Claire, would you like to, we've got time, would you like to reply to any of James's points uh, before we go to the Q&A? Yes, actually, just let me say a couple of things. The first is on untying. I agree with James that after the scandal of the Pergao Dam, which got so much publicity because it was taken, I think, by the World Development Movement to the courts and found to be illegal spending in breach of, a, of an act that was very general, but it went too far, you'd think everyone was persuaded. But when I was getting to total untying, I had a lot of resistance, particularly from the Department of Trade and Industry, which was headed by Margaret Beckett at that time, you know, who had a tradition of being a, if I think she was a special advisor to Judith Hart when she was at the department. So that all I would say is even after Pergau, the instinct in the British government system to be able to use aid for British investment purposes was still there and it was a fight to get rid of it. Um, and I think it's been creeping back. And let me say, when I say I'm, I'm not wedded to 0.7, I am wedded to a generous development budget, but we need to keep the public with us. And I think that when aid was growing and uh, everything else was being cut, I think we lost some public support that was destructive and has helped to, to lead us to here. And on your point about, yes, we used to have principles of humanitarian relief and no merging between military objectives and humanitarianism. There are principles that everyone signed up to. And then when it got to Afghanistan and Iraq, they all went out the window. And indeed, aid money has been splashed around Whitehall since it got bigger. The military handles some of it, as do lots of other departments. And that principle has been broken. And so you get to the positions like Yemen where you've got the biggest humanitarian disaster in the world and you've got Britain providing arms and advice to how the people might be bombed. Um, this is shocking and talk about incoherence. That's why when I Britain's going to work in fragile countries, we need to think out these principles again and how to be effective because bombing people and then patching them up is no way to behave either morally or in terms of effectiveness.
Thank you, Claire. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series from 2020 to 2021. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search for International Development LSE. And you can stay informed about upcoming events, including the next series of Cutting Edge Issues lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website or find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.